Nothing in life is worthwhile unless you take risks. At different times, I'd fantasized about becoming a great novelist, a great journalist, a great statesman. But the ultimate dream was always to be a great athlete. Sadly, fate had made me good, not great. At 24, I was finally resigned to that fact. I had run track at Oregon, and I distinguished myself lettering three or four years but that was that. The end. Now, as I began to clip off one brisk six-minute mile after another, as the rising sun set fire to the lowest needles of the pines, I asked myself, what if there were a way, without being an athlete, to feel what athletes feel, to play all the time instead of working, or else to enjoy work so much that it becomes essentially the same thing? The world was so overrun with war and pain and misery. The daily grind was so exhausting and often unjust. Maybe the only answer, I thought, was to find some improbable dream that seemed worthy, that seemed fun, that seemed a good fit, and chase it with an athlete's single-minded dedication and purpose. Like it or not, life is a game. Whoever denies that truth, whoever simply refuses to play, gets left on the sidelines. And I didn't want that. More than anything... That was the thing I did not want, which led, as always, to my crazy idea. Maybe, I thought, just maybe, I need to take one more look at my crazy idea. Maybe my crazy idea just might work. Maybe. No, no, I thought, running faster, faster, running as if I were chasing someone and being chased all at the same time. It will work. By God, I'll make it work. No maybes about it. I was suddenly smiling, almost laughing, drenched in sweat, moving as gracefully and effortlessly as I ever had. I saw my crazy idea shining up ahead, and it didn't look all that crazy. It didn't even look like an idea. It looked like a place. It looked like a person or some life force that existed long before I did, separate from me, but also part of me, waiting for me, but also hiding from me. That might sound a little high-flown, a little crazy, but that's how I felt back then. At 24, I did have a crazy idea, and somehow, despite being dizzy with existential angst and fears about the future and doubts about myself, as all young men and women in their mid-twenties are, I did decide that the world is made up of crazy ideas. History is one long processional of crazy ideas. The things I loved most, books, sports, democracy, free enterprise, started as crazy ideas. For that matter, few ideas are as crazy as my favorite thing running. It's hard, it's painful, it's risky. The rewards are few and far from guaranteed. When you run around an oval track or down an empty road, you have no real destination, at least none that can fully justify the effort. The act itself becomes the destination. It's not just that there's no finish line, it's that you define the finish line. Whatever pleasures or gains you derive from the act of running, you must find them within. It's all in how you frame it how you sell it to yourself. Every runner knows this. You run and run mile after mile and you never quite know why. You tell yourself that you're running towards some goal, chasing some rush, but really, you run because the alternative, stopping, scares you to death. So that morning in 1962, I told myself, let everyone else call your idea crazy, just keep going. Don't stop. Don't even think about stopping until you get there and don't give much thought to where there is. Whatever comes, just don't stop. 
That's the urgent advice I managed to give myself out of the blue and somehow managed to take half a century later. I believe it's the best advice, maybe the only advice any of us should ever give. Now that's an excerpt from the book Shoe Dog by Phil Knight himself. And that's what we're going to dive into, Phil Knight, the greatness, the life, the lessons that I learned from his book today. And it's one of my favorite books so far because Phil is such a great storyteller. And I want to start this off by the question you should ask yourself and the importance of finding work that feels like play. Phil wrote in the book, now, as I began to clip off one brisk six-minute mile after another, I asked myself, what if there were a way without being an athlete to feel what athletes feel, to play all the time instead of working, or else to enjoy work so much that it becomes essentially the same thing? I think the key to life is to find what you love and do it forever. We hear it a lot, but the second you can find work that feels like play— You've hit the jackpot. You've hit the lottery because every day you wake up to Christmas. It's Christmas every single day because you get to do the thing you love to do. And sometimes you can find play without the play actually being the thing you wanted to do. Phil Knight wanted to be an Olympic cross-country runner, a track and field athlete, but he wasn't good enough for it. Fate threw things his way and he wasn't ever going to go down that path. But he found a way to stay within sports, to stay within track and field By having his crazy idea, his crazy idea that would turn out to be shoes and shoes that kept him in touch with athletes to have that connection with athletes and sport and the thing he always loved, which was track and field and running. And therefore, work always felt like play. And you find play by doing what you love. And that's what Phil Knight did. And that's why Nike became what Nike was, because he simply and truly enjoyed the thing. Now, we talked a little bit about, in the excerpt, the crazy idea. Phil Knight had this crazy idea from a young age, or not a young age, in college. He wrote a research paper in grad school about shoes and the business opportunity of importing high-quality, low-cost shoes from Japan to the United States. And eventually, Phil was sitting with the idea for a while, and he decided to run with it. He He wanted to run with this crazy idea. Because he knew that life was one long story of crazy idea after crazy idea. And he wanted to be a part of that story. But he would first need to go to Japan to scout out the land, to talk with some shoe companies that would be good to sell in the U.S. And instead of just going to Japan, he actually turned this thing into a trip of traveling the world. He, he wanted to go to a lot of different places before he went to Japan or along his way to Japan. And there comes a really important moment in this journey. Him and his uh, travel mate, Carter, actually take a quick hiatus in Hawaii. And they're there for a couple months. And he actually starts to have some doubts here. And Phil writes, Go home, a faint inner voice told me. Get a normal job. Be a normal person. Then I heard another faint voice, equally emphatic. No, don't go home. Keep going. Don't stop. There's always going to be two voices in your journey. There's going to be the voice that's telling you to play it safe, the voice that's telling you to take the risk, the voice that's telling you to, 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 to become what society wants you to become, the voice telling you to become what you want to become. There will always be two voices in your life, and most of the time, you want to listen to the latter 
the one that's about taking the risk, the one that's about doing things that are different, the one that's not about listening to your parents or society or the people around you. And Phil heard those two voices. He heard that first voice that told him to go home, to get a normal job, to be a normal person. But then he heard that second voice. No, don't go home. Keep going. Don't stop. Run with your crazy idea. And it's the people who are willing to listen to that second voice and actually run with their crazy idea that actually turn that crazy idea into a good idea, into something that is remembered forever as Nike would become. Now, Nike would actually start as a company called Blue Ribbon. Um, and it was selling shoes from Japanese imports. Imports. Um, their main shoe was called the Tiger early on. And I first want to talk a little bit about about Steve Jobs' sales strategy and two things about it. So Steve wrote, or not Steve, my bad, Phil. Phil wrote, my sales strategy was simple, and I thought it was rather brilliant. After being rejected by a couple of sporting goods stores, I drove all over the Pacific Northwest to various track meets. Between races, I chat up the coaches, the runners, the fans, and then my wares. The response was always the same. I couldn't write orders fast enough. When you're trying to sell a product, don't go to a business and try to sell it through them. Go to the customer themselves and tell them about it. But it's not just about telling the customers. It's about how you tell the customers. And this is, I think, the really important thing when it comes to marketing or sales. He says, driving back to Portland, I puzzled over my son's success at selling. I'd been unable to sell encyclopedias, and I despised it to boot. I'd been slightly better at selling mutual funds, but I felt dead inside. So why was selling shoes so different? Because I realized it wasn't selling. I believed in running. I believed that if people got out and ran a few miles every day, the world would be a better place, and I believed these shoes were better to run in. People sensing my belief won some of that belief for themselves. Belief, I decided... Belief is irresistible. I think the best marketing and sales strategy are two things. To, to, to genuinely care for the person and then to have an irrational belief in your product, in your service. And that's what Phil had. He believed so much in these shoes that the people saw that belief. And because they saw that belief, they in turn believed in the product. So when it comes to selling something or marketing something, you need to have so much belief in your product. But that comes from the product actually working and knowing that it can change someone's life or can solve some complex problem and make their lives easier or better. And as, as, as Phil said, belief, I decided, belief is irresistible. You don't just need to sell the product. You need to believe in the product. And that's what Phil did. And that's why he had so much success early on at Blue Ribbon and selling a lot of these tiger shoes to coaches, to track athletes, and all across the world. Now, one of Phil's early partners, or his first partner at Blue Ribbon, was Bill Bowerman. And Bill Bowerman was the track coach at the University of Oregon, and he actually coached Phil while Phil ran there for four years. And one thing we can really take from Bill is he was someone who was always experimenting. After Blue Ribbon got a deal from the with, from the Japanese shoe company, uh, the Tigers, Bill became sort of this relentless scientist. And this was something he had always exemplified, but he carried into Blue Ribbon and with Phil Knight as well. And when he, he got these Tigers, these shoes, he would tear the Tigers apart. And as Phil wrote, he said, he continued to tear apart Tigers, continued to use the young men on his track team as lab mice. Bowerman would note how the arches held up, how the soles gripped the cinders. 
how the toes pinched and the instep flexed. Eventually, he broke through. Soft inner sole, more arch support, heel wedge to reduce stress on the Achilles tendon. And, and Bill's experimentation kind of sheds light into the importance of just always experimenting in your life, in your roles, in your business, whatever you're doing, you should always be experimenting with things. The more you experiment, the more knowledge you have, the more information you have. And the more knowledge and information you have, the more you can compare what you've done with what you're doing and see what works best. Then you can create methods and tactics and strategies from there going forward that kind of create a, a, a blueprint and framework to have the most success, but you always have to be experimenting. You always have to be curious. You have to think like a scientist in all different aspects of your life, not just in business, but in your relationships, in your health, in your personal endeavors. In any area you want to grow, you need to be experimenting. Now, another thing with Bill Bowerman is he had a significant impact on Phil Knight and who Phil Knight would become. And there's a really cool story that I love. Um, between the two. So Phil Knight was a sophomore at the University of Oregon. And there comes a time where Phil is being really overwhelmed with schoolwork and, and practice and a lot of the, the stressors of college life. And he was feeling under the weather and he went to Bill Bowerman's office, his, his track coach, and he told him he wouldn't be able to practice. And Bill responds, he goes, uh-huh, who's the coach of the team? You are, Phil told him. Well, as coach of this team, Bill said, I'm telling you to get your ass out there. And by the way, we're going to have a time travel today. Now, there's something I want to take from this story. And it reminds me of something I read in Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art. And he talks about in that book that there's only two excuses in your life for not showing up. You're in the hospital or you lost a friend or loved one. Those are the only two valid excuses for not showing up as an artist or as, as, and when I say artist, that can be anything, a founder, an athlete, a student, a parent, whatever role you're in, those are the only two valid excuses for not showing up. If you're sick, that is not a valid excuse for not showing up. If you didn't sleep well, that's not a valid excuse for not showing up. If you, if you're having trouble in a relationship, that is not a valid excuse for not showing up, especially if you want to be great. The great show up no matter what and that's a story that exemplifies that bill bowerman expected excellence from his athletes and he understood phil knight was sick i don't care i know he can be great he needs to be out there he needs to be working his ass off so the only two valid excuses you have are you're in the hospital or you lost a loved one or friend any other excuse is not valid and you should be showing up for your craft for your business for your partner whatever it may be now when it comes to running a business Phil Knight, so he had started Blue Ribbon, and we all kind of know about the startup lifestyle and, and, and the stress it put on, puts on someone. And when Phil Knight started Blue Ribbon, he was actually working a different job as well to pay the bills because he wasn't paying himself. And he says something unique here. He says, I was putting in six days a week at uh, Pierce Waterhouse, which is where he was working at, spending early morning and late nights and all weekends and vacations at Blue Ribbon. No friends, no exercise, no social life, and wholly content. My life was out of balance, sure, but I didn't care. In fact, I wanted even more imbalance or a different kind of imbalance. We hear the word balance a lot today, and I think it's the wrong way of, pro of approaching things. We think balance will solve burnout and stress, but I don't think it's about balance. It's about alignment. Because when you hear the word balance, there's this idea that you need to offset work with rest. And, and I think rest is essential and you need it to work at your best. But 
when we talk about balance, it's more about alignment of doing the things you love to do. Phil Knight loved working. He loved his company. So he was going to spend every waking moment he wanted to working on blue ribbon, working on selling shoes, working on getting shoes out to the world so more people would run because he aligned with that. And that's what you need to do. If you love one thing, align everything in your life around that thing. You don't need balance. You don't need to spend life equally amongst four, five, six different roles. Find the things you truly love, the things you align with. And spend all your time doing that. And then you'll never burn out because you're doing the thing you love to do. Burnout, I think, is a result of lack of alignment, of doing work you don't love to do, of doing work you don't want to do. So in your pursuit of balance, don't chase balance. Chase alignment. Now, one reason Blue Ribbon had some success, and they had a lot of things they had to deal with. Any startup deals with a lot of things from, from money, from cash flow, from, from dealing with debt, all these all these problems that, that startups deal with. But one reason Blue Ribbon had a lot of success early on in doubling sales year over year was who he brought in. And, and Phil brought in people that were like him. He said, suddenly a whole new cast of characters was wandering in and out of the office. Rising sales enabled me to hire more and more reps. Most were ex-runners and eccentrics, as only ex-runners can be. Phil Knight felt like a different individual. He felt like he was different from the masses. So he wanted people that were like him. He wanted eccentric, unorthodox people around him. But he also wanted people who fit the brand. So we brought in ex-runners, people who knew about the sport, people who knew about the importance of shoes. And that is that is so important that I think some businesses get wrong, is you need to hire f- people who live the brand, who are the brand, who fit the brand, and who are exactly like you. And, and sometimes I think people get caught up in looking for skills and experience, that it's better to have people who lived the brand, who have never done anything like this, than someone who has the skills and experience, who doesn't believe in the brand or business or company or product or mission that they that, that company has. You need to hire people who truly, truly fit the brand and the mission of the company and who are exactly like you and working towards that same goal, the ultimate goal of greatness, whatever you're after as a company. Now, when it comes to Phil Knight, being a founder, when you're a founder, you're a leader or, or, or you're, you're, you're named a leader. And I want to talk a little bit about Phil Knight's leadership style or kind of his way of thinking about things. And one thing leaders do a lot is they read a bunch. They read a lot of biographies. They read a lot of books about how they can become better leaders. And Phil did the same thing. And he said, one lesson I took from my homeschooling about heroes was they, that they didn't say much. None was a blabbermouth, none micromanaged. Don't tell people how to do things, tell them what to do, and let them surprise you with the results. I think that's such an underrated aspect of leadership. Is it's a fine balance of instructing people to do things, but letting them find creative solutions on their own. As he says, don't tell people how to do things, tell them what to do, and let them surprise you with the results. People find such unique ways to having solutions to problems. And a lot of times we get in front of them as leaders or we restrict their creativity or their ability to solve a problem by telling them exactly how to do something. Just tell them what to do and let them learn. 
let them get creative with their own experience or their own ideas of how to solve that thing. And then you can come in and give your advice about, hey, maybe I think you should do it this way or that way. But as a leader, I think back off a little bit and find a way to tell people what to do and then let them find a way how or let them find the how to that what. That's an underrated aspect of leadership. Now, I want to move on from leadership, and I know we're bouncing all over the place, to some of the, the principles Phil Knight used when it came to marketing and design and kind of his thoughts on competition as well. So we talked a little bit about his leadership style and and letting people have a lot of creative freedom when it comes to solving problems. Another thing I really took away from Phil, which which reminds me of Apple as well as we'll talk about here, was the importance of the design of your product. So Phil Knight wrote about kind of shoe boxes. He says, in those days, shoe boxes were either white or blue, but I wanted something that would stand out, that would pop in the shelves of sporting goods stores. So I asked Nippon Rubber for the boxes of bright neon orange, figuring the boldest color in the rainbow. So when Steve Jobs and Apple were working on the Macintosh, um, he understood, and, and it was this is in Walter Isaacson's biography, he says, Jobs knew that people do judge a book by its cover. So he re- redesigned the box 50 times because he wanted perfection, a common theme throughout his time at Apple. And because people judge a book by its cover, Phil understood that if we can get something to pop, to flash, people are going to take a second look at it. They're going to realize, oh, maybe I want that thing. Maybe I want that shiny object because it stands out from the rest. So while everyone had white and blue boxes, Phil had these orange, bright, neon-colored boxes of shoes, and this was now the Nike shoe. And this shoe ultimately turned Blue Ribbon into changing its name to Nike that caught the eye of people. And we see it, they still have it today, the bright blue boxes that stand out. And that's such an important thing when it comes to marketing is how can you make your product stand out without people actually seeing the product beforehand through the design of the box or the outside of it. That's such a valuable thing that you can try to do with a business or a product or service to make it catch someone's eye. Now, Phil Knight has a really unique perspective on competition, something I... I I've never seen before or how we framed it. And I think it's really valuable. So when you're when you're a company, when you're Phil Knight at Nike and Blue Ribbon, or if you're a founder, or you work in a business, or you're an athlete or artist, you're always competing. You might be competing with a business. You might be competing with a person. You might just be competing with yourself. But you need some sort of competition. Competition is, the, is a seed for progress. It pushes you forward. It makes you better. And... Phil wrote in the book, he said, people reflexively assume that competition is always a good thing. That is, that is always, or that always brings out, my bad, let me start over here. People reflexively assume that competition is always a good thing, that it always brings out the best in people. But that's only true for people who can forget the competition. The art of competing, I learned from Trek, was the art of forgetting. And now I reminded myself of that fact. You must forget your limits. You must forget your doubts, your pain, and your past. You must forget that internal voice screaming, begging, not one more step. And when it's not possible to forget it, you must negotiate with it. I thought over all the races in which my mind wanted one thing and my body wanted another. Those laps in which I had to tell my body, yes, you raised some excellent points, but let's keep going 
Anyway, competition is the art of forgetting. I love how, how Phil Knight said that, and I want to say it again. He said, the art of competing I learned from track was the art of forgetting. And now I reminded myself of that fact. You must forget your limits. You must forget your doubts, your pain, and your past. To compete with other people is to forget about them, to forget about your competitors, to forget about yourself and the pain you're dealing with and the things you're going through. And I think that's such a valuable piece of advice. And I actually took it recently. I'm training for a marathon right now. And and while I'm running, I'm reminding myself, I need to forget the pain I'm feeling. I need to forget the time I'm after. I just need to run. I need to, to let everything go. And I ran better than I had ever run before. So competition is the act of forgetting. That's such a unique perspective, but I think something we can all use. So forget your limits, forget your competitors, forget your doubts, forget the pain, forget the person, just forget and act. And I think you'll actually do better than actually focusing on the competition. And and staying on in this line of competition and the importance of it. So as Phil Knight says, competition is the act of forgetting. But competition is also something that, as I mentioned earlier, it breeds progress, it breeds motivation, it breeds success. And competition is what drove Phil Knight. And he said one time in this book, he has a passage, he says, leaning back in my recliner each night, staring at the ceiling, I tried to settle myself. I told myself, life is growth. You grow or you die. Life is growth, you grow or you die. Death is not when you take your last breath. Death is when you choose to stop moving forward. And you keep moving forward by having something to compete with. You need some company, you need some brand, you need some person, or maybe it's just yourself to compete with every single fucking day, or you're going to die. Life is about growth. Progress is about growth. Greatness is about growth. If you aren't growing, you're dying. And in order to make sure you're not dying, you need some sort of competition, something to go or someone, some some company, something to compete against, to go to war with every single day. Or you're going to be on the back burner and you're going to fall behind. And Phil actually found his enemy in Adidas. He said, I was developing an unhealthy contempt for Adidas. Or maybe it was healthy that one German company had dominated the shoe market for a couple of decades and they possessed all the arrogance of unchallenged dominance. Of course, it's possible that they weren't arrogant at all, that to motivate myself, I needed to see them as a monster. In any event, I despised them. I was tired of looking up every day and seeing them far, far ahead. I couldn't bear the thought that it was my fate to so forever. Having an enemy is so valuable. Having someone that you can go to war with every single day is so valuable. And I think if you look at the greats, they are all internally motivated. They have this dream, this goal, this this ultimatum, this destiny that they are after, this legacy, this impact that they are after. But they also use these little side slide remarks or, or little things outside of themselves As motivation, I think a lot of Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan, when they would have competitors trash talking them, or they would have an owner that said something about them, they would use those things as extra motivation. And that's what Phil Knight used with Adidas. He saw them as a monster, whether they they were or not, and used that as an advantage. Because when you find an enemy, you become more motivated. You work harder. You work longer. And without an enemy, you often grow lazy. You won't be the best version 
of yourself. So find someone you can compete with, someone you can go to war with every single day. Now we're getting near the end of the episode and there's three more things I want to touch upon. And and, and this next one is on this idea of winning. We just talked about Phil Knight and he said, life is growth, you grow or you die. And, And this next passage is very similar to that. He says, I would search my mind and heart and the only thing I could come up with was this word, winning. It wasn't much, but it was far, far better than the alternative. Whatever happened, I just didn't want to lose. Losing was death. Blue Ribbon was my third child, my business child. And I simply couldn't bear the idea of it dying. It has to live, I told myself. It just has to. Life is about winning. However you define that. It's about winning in, in your roles as a, as a boyfriend, as a son, as a daughter, as an athlete, as an employee, as a founder. Life is about winning. And winning isn't necessarily being on top. Winning isn't necessarily getting first place. Winning is about growing. If you're growing, you are winning. If you aren't growing, you are dying and you are losing. So constantly remind yourself of that word. Winners are always thinking about winning. Winners are always thinking about how they can get better. Winners are always thinking about how they can grow today. And losing ultimately is death. If you view losing as death, you are going to win. And there's a one of one of Blue Ribbon's first athlete endorsers was uh, Steve uh, Prefontaine, and he said something that that. I think encompasses kind of Phil Knight's attitude. He said, somebody may beat me, but they're going to have to bleed to do it. And Phil Knight thought to himself, he said, somebody may beat me. I told myself, some banker or creditor or competitor may stop me. But by God, they're going to have to bleed to do it. You can never guarantee that you're going to win. No matter how hard you work, no matter how relentless you are, no matter how many things you do in the right ways for the right reasons, no matter how consistent or disciplined you are, winning is never a guarantee. But the one thing you can do is work so hard that if someone is going to beat you, that they have to, as Stephen, as Steve uh, Prefontaine said, somebody may beat me, but they're going, going to have to bleed to do it. And that's what you need to do. You need to be so relentless that if someone is going to beat you, they need to push past the human capabilities, the, the limits of the human body and mind and soul in order to do it. That's what the greats do. They are relentless in their work. And if they do get beat, it's because they made someone bleed to do it. Now, when it comes to running a company, when it comes to what Phil Knight did and in, 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 in building Nike and building one of the best brands and companies the world has ever seen, it's stressful. As he talked about, kind of, we talked about alignment and balance and, and, and the culture of startups, it's a stressful lifestyle. And Phil would say all throughout the book that whenever he was dealing with something, whenever something was going on with the company, Phil would get away from all the stress in the company with a nightly six-mile run. Every time he'd come home, he'd go out for a six-mile run. And there's so much value in that of finding some sort of sanctuary, something you love to do. Something that you love to do away from that one thing that can get your mind off it, that can that can resettle you, that can realign you. There's so much value in that, in finding something that you can do, you can be present in, that gets your mind away from winning, from competing, 
from being relentless. And we all need that. It's great to be obsessive. It's great to be relentless. It's great to be a competitor. But you also need to find some things that get you out of that mode. It could be running. It could be writing. It could be reading. It could be lifting. It could be playing a sport, making art, being an artist, whatever that thing is. You need to find a sanctuary so you can get away from that mindset of winning and competing and being relentless. So when you get back into that mindset, you're ready to go to war. Now, as I always do, I like to leave these episodes on one final note. And on the last page or last couple pages of this book, Phil writes, I tell men and women in their mid-20s not to settle for a job or a profession or even a career. Seek a calling. Even if you don't know what that means, seek it. If you're following your calling, the fatigue will be easier to bear. The disappointments will be fuel. The highs will be nothing like you've ever felt before. We talked a little bit at the beginning, but the key to life is, is, is making work feel like play. Finding a calling, finding a profession, finding a purpose that feels like you're going to the playground every day. Something, something you do that when you wake up every day, it feels like Christmas morning when you were a little kid. That is what a calling is. And the value of a calling is it makes the struggle not just hard, but fun. It makes the disappointments fuel. It turns the highs into highs that you've never felt before. So the goal in life is to seek a calling. And you find your calling. You find your play. You find your love by being interested in a lot of things. You find what you're interested in by being interested in a lot of things. So as Phil Knight said, I tell men and women in their mid-20s not to settle for a job or a profession or even a career. Seek a calling. Even if you don't know what that means, seek it. If you're following your calling, the fatigue will be easier to bear. The disappointments will be fuel. The highs will be nothing like you've ever felt before. I am the greatest. Alexander, he's no Alexander. I'm the best ever. Nothing in life is worthwhile unless you take risks.